Well, this morning we're going to do what might be considered somewhat impossible, which is to try and uh, digest uh, a whole book, and the book is the book of Job. This book is counted as part of what's called wisdom literature, which includes Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and Job, and a few other parts of the Bible, especially in the Psalms. And so its central issue is the very issue we were thinking about with the young people a moment ago, which is the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. And even in Job's life, that is one of the great themes that comes out in this book, to fear God even amidst suffering, to fear God even though he was righteous. Humanly speaking, he was righteous. And yet, even amidst suffering, he feared God. Now, we know far more than Job did because we have the whole book and we know to the rest of Scripture. And so, while Job was at sea about so much that was happening to him, uh, we do know more. And yet, even when we get to the end of the book, it's all 42 chapters, we realize that one of the puzzling things about the book of Job is that nowhere does God give a completely full explanation as to why what happened to him did happen to him. But simply this, it underlines his integrity, it underlines his fear of God, even amidst suffering. And this surely has a very modern ring to it, does it not, as a lesson for us. Now, we're going to look at, have this satellite view, as it were, of the book by just reflecting on what it tells us about God's ways. And the first thing is it tells us is that God's ways are sovereign, God's sovereign ways. Because the lack of an explanation as to why that suffering came upon Job that God doesn't give to Job, he tells him many things. He tells some of those things through uh, Elihu, who perhaps is uh, uh, a type of a a gospel preacher. Um, That's towards the end of the book. He tells certain things which, when filtered out uh, theologically in the right way, he tells certain things to Job through his three friends. But he doesn't really say anything about exactly why he's going through what he does go through. So he doesn't owe Job an explanation and he doesn't owe any of us an explanation. He never owes Christians or non-Christians an explanation as to why he does what he does. I remember not too long ago, our pastor brought out to us in one of our Bible studies the quality of meekness. And he brought out to us that meekness is submission, and he particularly brought out the thought that that is submission in the first instance to God. And we see this in Job's experience. When Job has gone through all he did go through in chapter 1, the loss of all his possessions, the loss of his children, 
uh, one hammer blow after another, one messenger after another, just someone left, escapes as it were, to be there alive to tell him what happened. It seems so perverse, and yet all that Job does is to arise and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. There's a meekness there. There's a submission. How different from what we're told we should be like uh, today in society, that we are owed things, we are owed explanations, we are owed recompense, we're owed this and we're owed that, and we, have, uh, we, we can even get into that frame of mind to do with God. I've heard people say, I'll, I'll get God to give me an explanation of what's happened to me. No, he is immense. He is sovereign. We are his creatures. And if we're Christians, we are ransomed from our sin and we're ransomed from what our sin deserves. And he owes us nothing. He's sovereign. That's what sovereign means. And we bow before him and we bow before the mystery. The second thing we notice are his mysterious ways. Now, one of the dimensions in this book that uh, Job was not really aware of, he was aware of evil. He was aware of evil being said to him. But one of the dimensions clearly that was held back from him was what was going on in the invisible realm, the activity of Satan. And there is a, a personal devil. He's called Satan. And there are evil angels with him. They were created by God, sinless, but they rebelled. And they are heading for one day for the lake of fire. But at the moment, there is an angry devil. And Job was unaware of Satan's activity in the various disasters that overtook his property, uh, his possessions, his, his employment, and then the things that were said to him. And one of the keys to understanding what is going on in this book is to realize that Satan is not just active in the, in the whirlwind and in the evil activities of the marauding bands, the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and others. That's, we today would say that's obvious that he's active in that kind of violence uh, and predatory behavior. He didn't know that, that Satan was especially active there, but the, the key to understanding the book is that Satan was also active in what was said to Job through his friends, his three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. Uh, perhaps three tormentors would be a better uh, thing to call them. Now, these were godly men. But because of their poor theology, because of their poor understanding of the ways of God, they said wrong things to Job about what was happening to him and why it was happening to him. Their basic theology was what we would today call the prosperity gospel, which is that if you are godly and if you fear the Lord, then you will be blessed with wealth and health and nothing wrong will happen to you. And if it does, it's only because you have a lack of faith. And therefore, if you, suffering has come upon you, you must have sinned. And if you didn't sin, your children must have sinned. And they really bring that home and pierce Job with their, their words. Now, Satan was active in that. Satan was active 
in the words of his wife. And you may say, well, that was a poor choice that Job made when he married a woman like that. But we need to see exactly what he says to his wife. When his wife says, dost thou still retain thine integrity, curse God and die? And we need to understand that the word curse there really means take your leave of God. It doesn't mean blaspheme as such. Although it's translated like that, it means just simply leave God, depart from God. He's departed from you, you depart from him. But notice what Job says. He says, thou speakest as one of the foolish women. He doesn't say she is a fool, which would be the equivalent of an unbeliever, but he says you're speaking like an unbeliever. But she was, of course, uttering from her false theology, she was uttering also a wrong statement. God hadn't left Job, and he wasn't to leave God. So God's mysterious ways. Let's just take the obvious lesson here, that God uses even Satan as part of his mysterious providence, as part of his mysterious working. In suffering, in violence, in evil, without in any sense being the author or approver of sin, God uses him. God employs him. That can be true in our lives too. I think C.H. Spurgeon gives us a tremendous illustration of how God does this. C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 19th century, he once uh, wrote about the verse in the Psalms, Psalm 76, verse 10, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. And he said, you, you need to think of a mill pond. Probably most of us haven't seen a mill pond, but this huge pond beside a mill that used to turn the wheel of the mill. And some of the water goes out and turns the wheel, and the wheel then grinds the corn and so on. And the rest is dammed up. And he says, this is how it is with the wrath of man. Some of it God allows to be expressed, and he, it turns his wheel, as it were. It brings about his purposes, but the rest he restrains, because he is holy and no lover of sin. And of course, that wheel was turned, as it were, in the crucifixion of Christ, when with wicked hands they laid their hands on Christ and crucified him. But they were doing, in spite of their malice, they were actually doing the will of God, in that Jesus Christ became the substitute for our sins on the cross and he was punished in our place. There was something deeply mysterious about what God did through evil agents in the life of Christ. And it's here seen for us in the life of this righteous man, Job. And it is true, is it not, brothers and sisters? We must remember that there are not two gods, God and Satan. There's only one God. And Satan is a rebellious angel. And he only does what God permits. And that is one of the key points in these first two chapters. He is summoned into the presence of God. He has no alternative. He has to give an account of what he's been doing. God says, have you been eyeing? Have you been summing up my servant Job? It doesn't mean, have you been looking at him? It means, have you been staring at him like a predatory animal, as someone you'd like to pounce on? But God only allows him to pounce on him to a certain extent. And so it is 
when evil and darkness and Satan's activity come upon his people, upon you and me, thus far, but no further. And we need to remember that. God is able to keep us. There's no temptation overtaken us, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be, to be tempted above what you are able. God's mysterious ways. And then, thirdly, we notice God's holy ways. When you read the book, you realise that as the friends get their knives into Job, thinking they're saying the right things and doing God's will by so saying, you realise that things get very heated on all sides. And not just on the friend's side, Job's side, things get very hot and foolish words are spoken all round. And yet, at the end of the book, God says that Job maintained his integrity. It doesn't mean that Job didn't sin. As he says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He knows he's spoken things he doesn't understand. He's, he's dared to speak about things that are above him and beyond him. He's aware of his sinfulness. And yet God says, you have maintained my integrity and you've maintained your integrity. Why is that? Because Job has been standing up for something here. He's been standing up for what God is really like. In Job chapter 13, verse 15, it says, Job says, though he, that is God, slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yet I will maintain mine own ways before him. In other words, I still trust him, even though I cannot understand this, even though I'm, I'm, I have my uh, integrity, I'm walking in the wisdom of God, yet he, is, he seems to be against me. But I still trust him. I still maintain that he is not like the heathen gods, that he is not amoral, that he's not capricious, that he's not, for example, like Allah, who just does what he wants to do, whether or not it's moral, whether or not it's good. Just, it's just the will of God. It's just his sovereignty. Job stands up for a God whose ways are righteous. He cannot understand him. He cannot see him, but he knows he's there. He, he, he cannot lay hold on him, but he knows he's surrounded by him. And he knows that there is an integrity in God. Friends, how much there is for us to learn here. We're so quick, are we not, to uh, bring God to the judgment bar and make um, foolish accusations in our souls against him and against why he does what he does. Why should he send a pandemic on our world that lasts for years? You know, he's not, got no right to do that. We're living in the 21st century. He's got no right to do that. Wait a minute. He has every right to do what he is doing, and his ways are holy. And then we can say fourthly, as well as his sovereign ways and his mysterious ways and his holy ways, we can say here that we learn something about his deliberate ways because as in all the scriptures 
there is also a Christ-centeredness. The purpose of God in the Old Testament is to prepare for the Messiah, to prepare for his son. And in Job, in as far as he maintains a righteous walk, there is a type of Christ. And you see this particularly in chapter 29. You can call chapter 29 of Job as he looks back on, on the golden days before he suffered and as he accounts the kind of person he was, you can look back on this, you can look on this particular chapter as, as wisdom personified. Let's just hear a few verses from chapter 29, verse 11 onwards. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, saw me it gave witness to me. Because I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me, and judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, I searched out. Well, yes, it's lovely poetry, but it's also here an expression of wisdom in action. The fear of God showing itself in love for others, loving God and then loving others. And in this, he was a type of Christ, but he wasn't sinless. And he had lessons to learn. And we must just remember that to exalt Christ is part of God's great purpose in the earth. It was certainly his purpose in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, in the anticipation and preparation for the coming of Christ, and then in the New Testament, with the coming of Christ and the explanation of why Jesus came. But it's true of all his purposes and all his works in the world, these sovereign, inscrutable purposes of God, these mysterious activities of God as he uses even suffering and even Satan and even sin as he steers it and and directs the water to turn the wheel. His great purpose is to exalt his son. So Psalm 110 says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power and the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. His purpose is to exalt his son. Or listen to Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage? And the people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against his Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You may remember that the New Testament, the book of Acts, applies this exactly to the persecution of Christ by Pontius Pilate. And by the Jews, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. And verse 6, yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And in ways we cannot fathom, this is what God is doing, even 
in our own little lives, even in what happens to us, for good or for ill. That's what God is doing. And we need to worship him and we need to say thy kingdom come and thy will be done. And may your name be exalted and may your son, son's glory be known throughout the earth. And then finally, we can say God's merciful ways, his inscrutable or sovereign ways, his holy ways, his mysterious ways, his deliberate ways, but also his merciful ways. It's quite clear by the end of the book, even Job who maintained his integrity and God commends him for that and says, my servant Job has spoken the right thing about me. He's upheld the truth of the kind of God I am. I'm not an amoral God. I'm not just mere sovereignty, but I'm holy. But even after all that, it's quite clear that all of them are just fallible human beings. Job says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. God takes to task uh, the three friends. My wrath is kindled against thee, he says to Eliphaz, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. There's not one of us who has not sinned. There's not one of us without the need of a saviour. And what we have in chapter 42 <coughs> is the provision of redemption, of salvation for these men. Yes, they are God-fearing, they do know the Lord, but there is the fresh provision of sacrifice. Verse 8, seven bullocks and seven rams, offer up yourself for yourselves a burnt offering. Uh, God, through those sacrifices, points to the coming sacrifice of Christ. For his people, as all the Old Testament sacrifices do. So there is propitiation, there is forgiveness. The wrath of God doesn't fall upon them, but it's fallen upon a substitute, which is what Jesus Christ is to his people. But also notice uh, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. We have here a further Christ-centred type, do we not? Another indication that Job is a type of Christ because he intercedes for his friends. He's a great high priest in that sense who intercedes. And in his intercession, what an intercession it was. They'd spoken to him words that were like daggers. They had been harsh and they had wrongly applied the theology, and it would have been very hard, it would have been hard enough to take from an unbeliever, but to take it from fellow believers, that was really hard. And yet Job prays for these people who've wronged him. There's a lesson there, is there not? Praise, we might say, for fellow Christians who have done very wrong and said very wrong. But he prays for his friends, and the Lord then turns his captivity. And notice that it was only after he prayed for his friends that the Lord turned the captivity. Before that, he was still on the ash heap. Before that, he was still covered with boils. Before that, he still had the sense of deprivation and bereavement. But then, when he did that, it was turned. There was, as it were, a resurrection in his life. There is here a type of, of resurrection. 
listen to what the uh, writer in the New Testament, James, has to say about this. James chapter 5 and verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, that is the endurance of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. This is one of the lessons we are to take from the book of Job, that God is so merciful with us, so long-suffering. We are so arrogant and so quick to, to, to judge him and so quick to say what he should do and why is he doing this. Of course, we don't literally vocalize it. If we're Christians, we shouldn't. But we kind of half-think it. and We don't mortify such thoughts. And yet God is so forgiving and merciful. And the great end of this story, the great uh, purpose that James picks out is that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Is that not true, my dear friends? Uh, listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says after the devastating destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. He says, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men, to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approveth not. He's full of tender mercy. This great God behind the at atom, atom's explosive power, this great God who's so overwhelming, who causes the mountains to tremble and to shake at his presence, who rides upon the wind, who sends out his lightnings in those theophanies in the Old Testament, this God who's revealed himself in the immense universe. He's not just naked power. He's full of love. He's full of tender compassion. And that compassion is revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we should take the overall lesson of this book, which is that we should be wise. We should have wisdom. We should have knowledge, which means we should fear God. Fear him because he's so awesome but also fear him with tender love because through Christ he can be our father.